Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In the first series of the Nitty Gritty Committee, we heard from Kerry Tucker, who spent seven years in the Dame Phyllis Frost Maximum Security Women's Prison for stealing money from her employer. The first series of the TV show Wentworth was actually based on her experience. This time, we're delving into the men's prison system. First, with journalist and author James Phelps, whose book Australia's Most Murderous Prison, Behind the Walls of Goulburn Jail is out now and it's exactly the book you want it to be if, like me, you have a ghoulish fascination with prison. It's terrifying, sickening and enthralling, but is it realistic? Well, stay tuned after James's chat for an insight from a former inmate who wishes to remain anonymous, by the way. He'll tell us, among other things, how much stuff he can hide in his backside. That's interesting. This is the Nitty Gritty Committee, stories about the guts and the glory of life. There are some ideas about race and religion in this podcast that I don't agree with personally, but I didn't edit them out because I decided they're valuable in terms of the setting of the scene of life inside prison. So please bear that in mind as we kick off the conversation with journalist and author James Phelps. Goulburn's like the, the killingest jail, though, isn't it, in yeah, Australia? the most murderous, which is uh, quite surprising. But there were seven murders over the space of three years in the 90s, and it became known as the Killing Fields. Including one, I was reading about one Cambodian man, and I thought, oh, God, the irony yeah. of this man coming to Australia and uh, ending up in prison and ending up being a victim of the Killing Fields of Goulburn Jail. Amazing. Yeah, that, that's right. But um, it was basically uh, kill on site. There, there was a spot in the yard where all seven were pretty much killed, and... Um, some of them would just get off the bus and walk into the yard, get their uh, gear, and they'd, they'd be dead two minutes later. And um, God. yeah, it was horrendous. And um, there's this remarkable case of this guy. He he got off the bus. He he just arrived in Goulburn, and he walked into the yard. And a guy walked up to him and said, "Are you Mr. Singh?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, I'm Mr. Singh." Then he got uh, stabbed seven times and died. And the the guy that actually stabbed him went into. Uh, the prison went to see the bloke that ordered the hit and said, mate, give me my money. And the guy goes, no, you got the wrong Singh. That that was Pritnam Singh. You needed Dave Singh. So oh. this this poor bloke got killed by a case of mistaken identity. But when you say poor, poor blokes, uh, Pritnam Singh was a rapist. He was a rapist, yes. And you detailed his crimes in the book. And he was, uh, there was a, a woman was forced into her home by three men. They filmed it. I mean, it was a pretty horrible crime. And... Um, I was surprised to learn that still in this day and age, in this day and age that seems so depraved at times, that there is such a hierarchy in prison for, you know, 
rapists and, and certainly people who hurt children and stuff. Well, it's interesting you say that because in the old days it was very strict on um, child sex offences and also crimes against women. Mm. But I can tell you now that, that, that child sex offences and pedophiles are still the lowest of the low and you they're, they're dead on sight basically if someone else gets hold of them. But um, the, the crimes on women, women seems to have relaxed a little bit. They're not seen as the um, horrendous crimes they are, even though they are. And, um, you know, it disgusts me a little bit. But it's because uh, probably a lot of the um, Islamic population in jail at the moment, they don't, you know, just believe these crimes against women are so serious. And that attitude has changed a little bit, which I find quite disturbing. But well, that, it is that's disturbing, it but is. also it seems to have proliferated. It seems to be proliferating in the greater community. I mean, we see... I think, more women murdered every year by partners. And certainly this year has been a bumper year for that. So maybe it's just, it's a microcosm of, of society and crimes against women are, are taken less seriously everywhere in Australia. Is that possible? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. I know it's a horrible thing to think could be possible. That's in job. But, you know, the, the, these guys that do commit attacks against women still do get it. And, um, you know, there's a, a few cases of guys being builded in the book because of it. And one of them was... Uh, uh, our famous uh, wanted man, Naden, who Malcolm Naden, who if you don't know, was on the run for mm. seven years in the bush, and he he committed murders against women. And um, his first day in there, he was he was all smug and thinking he was sweet, and didn't ask to go into protection. And he ended up in a yard with his cousin, and the cousin was actually the the brother of one of the women he killed. And yeah, he got bashed beyond recognition. Wow, uh, it is a it's a it's a community. In that that's one thing I got from your book. It's a community inside the the jail that has connections to other prisons, to other to crime groups. Still, you know, you don't really know what you're walking into. I guess. Yeah, it's quite amazing how that they can form those little cliques and gangs in jail. And you know, I feel sorry for the the young Anglo blokes that end up in there because they don't have any race related gangs to join up in and. And they get picked on straight away. They're going to be stood over basically as soon as they walk in and they've got to make a decision of whether they're going to fight and try and stand up to these blokes and, and find their own thing or whether or not they're going to smuggle drugs in their bum and do whatever these blokes ask. Wow. And in American prisons, famously, white guys end up joining white power groups and having swastikas tattooed on their face and stuff. And, and a lot of them come to regret that later or say, you know what, politically this is of no interest to me, but I had to do this for, for protection. Yeah, the Aryan uh, Brotherhood's actually the biggest gang in the world, believe it or not. Wow. And um, yeah, they outrate the Crips and you know the the Bloods and all these other gangs in America. And they've got forty percent of the prison population in America is uh, Aryan Brotherhood. So yeah, it's not like that over here. Certainly, the the, the Anglo's are in the minority, and um, at Goulburn, certainly the biggest groups were the uh, Indigenous Aboriginals and the Lebanese, and they bond together. They're in yards next to each other in a racially segregated area, mm. and um, yeah, they're actually the, the Aboriginal Indigenous guys put on one of the biggest riots in in history back in two thousand and one, and it left a uh, prison officer uh, in hospital in a coma for two or three months, and in hospital not getting rehabilitation for a year. And this poor guy, Tim Swain is his name. He's he's living in assisted care now. Um, he's a shadow of the guy he used to be. Yeah, he's featured in your book. Can you tell us a bit more about him? What sort of bloke was he before the riot? Yeah, look, I, I went down and met him. I actually, it took me a long time for him to, to agree to talk to me because he's still not in a great way. He has to have his mail read to him. Um, he, he can't... Uh, 
do everyday duties. He can make himself a cup of coffee now, which he was quite proud of. But um, I met his ex-wife, who was about to be uh, married. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no, they were engaged at the time, sorry. And they, they just bought a house, and she helped me out. But we went there, and apparently he was an athlete. He was doing the um, the Goulburn to Canberra bike ride. He was involved in triathlon. He was very fit. He was a good-looking bloke who apparently had five or six uh, women chasing after him. But he'd just gotten engaged, and he was saving up for his wedding and honeymoon. Um, they just moved into a new house, and on this day he went to work, and it just all broke loose. And, well, he and wasn't supposed to be at work, was he? He'd taken an overtime shift. In fact, all four guards in that wing uh, at that in that moment were not meant to be there. Well, I think this is the first interview I've done where someone actually has read the book. I can't, <laughs> can't put one over you. <laughs> I love this book so much, and I read it very carefully because I didn't want to waste my time with you. And I and and the facts are so much more incredible than fiction that I wanted to be sure to get them out there. They're amazing. So there's four guards in this unit when everyone's coming in for muster. None, none of them are meant to be there. They're all there on extra duty. And then what happens? Yeah, so one was an older bloke, a veteran. There was another female. And then there was a, a really young bloke that Tim said, you know, wasn't interested in the job, didn't like it much. But, yeah, they were up in the, the watchtower. And then they, they uh, little sort of caged area. And they were watching them all go in. And all of a sudden, they, they, they saw people making their way to the woman who was in the other end of the wing at the cage, the woman guard. And Tim and this guy said, look, we've got to go. Something's going to happen. And... As they were on their way there, they got jumped from a cell and um, Tim ended up getting hit with a didgeridoo, among other things, stomped, stomped, uh, punched, and um, he doesn't remember any of it, obviously, but um, the people that saw it, they, the guards had to rush in. It was a full-scale riot. They destroyed everything within the cell. You're talking desks. They had uh, sawn-off posts off their bed to use as poles. Mm. Um, they burnt, burnt whatever they could find. And anyway, he uh, was rushed to hospital and put on life support. And um, they actually asked the family and the father if they should turn the machine off because they said that he probably wouldn't pull through. And if he did, he was going to be, uh, you know, incapacitated and possibly a vegetable. So. Um, and meanwhile, his fiancée also worked at Goulburn and she yeah. was one of the responding officers um, who, who ran in there to try and, and stop the riot. So she was well aware that her her, her partner had been badly injured. Yeah, she uh, actually, as she was running in, she saw uh, the, the the guards being rolled out on um, mm. the stretches and into the ambulance, and she immediately knew it was Tim. She said it was just like a feeling she had that she knew it was him, and um, it was funny. She carried on with her job. She was absolutely professional. She was instrumental in um, shutting the riot down, and then when she sort of finished and came back and took her right gear off. They said, you better come with us. And mm. she got taken to hospital and I guess she was just numb for two or three days. She didn't quite understand what was going on. But um, You know what's significant about this story to me is, and again, about three days ago, they found a tunnel under Goulburn Jail, right? Yeah. And so I saw a, a little report on the news where um, the journo had gone into the Supermax area there of the prison and they were detailing the security measures and uh, there's cameras on every corner and, and all this eye, eye recognition technology and all that stuff. And I thought, reading your story, still though, there can be mistakes. There can be moments where these four guards who aren't meant to be there are there. And in that case, they have cages to lock themselves in, right? But the other two guards, the older guy and the female guard, 
hadn't managed to lock their gate. Yeah, that's right. That's, so Supermax is a, a jail within a jail. So yep. that's a, a facility within Goulburn. What were happening here, this was actually in the Indigenous wing, which right. is a, a maximum security wing, no less, but it's not quite as locked down as Supermax. Right. But yeah, they were making their way up But they to had the, the facilities. They had the facilities to get in there and lock themselves in. And in fact, Tim and the other young guy he was with, they did manage it. They got themselves locked into their cage and then had to unlock it and walk out into the melee to try and assist the other officers. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, you think you've covered all your bases, but then... Were, you know, they, they work every day with these people and you, you can't expect things like this just to tee off. I mean, they were nah. walking past these murderers and rapists every minute, speaking to them, putting them in their cells. and. But I suppose the difference is the prisoners have all day to think this stuff up. Oh, they do. They have all the time in the world and, um, you know, especially in some circumstances where in Supermax they spend 23 hours a day locked in their cell and they're let out for an hour a day um, if they've earned the privilege. Yeah. You detailed the book. I mean, how I came across this book and a lot of Australians would have was the other day they play, they printed an excerpt in the paper in which you discussed specifically Robert Hughes, the Hey Dad actor, and his First moments in Goulburn Jail, um, and that's how you open the book as well. And it's a great, it's a great way to try and get your head around the process from a person who's never been in jail before, and then finds themselves in this kind of environment. Can you talk us through that, please? Yeah, everyone thinks that um, what you see in movies is untrue, but what I've learnt doing these prison books is uh, everything you see in the movies is real and then some. And I think this story demonstrated that because I'm sure you haven't seen this in Shawshank Redemption no. or, or Escape for Alcatraz, but um, Robert Hughes was convicted of um, sexes against, uh, child sex offences and that puts him in the lowest form of criminal class and um, he went there and he was really smug and um, arrogant, hadn't showed any contrition for his crimes and then he turned up to Goulburn, that all changed very quickly. So he's um, gone through a reception, got his clothes and he's had to be processed through a yard. So he was in protection, which means they won't let the other inmates near him because they'd kill him on sight. But what he had to do here was walk across a yard that was lined with two other yards, with, but split apart by cyclone fences. And they'd found out that he was coming in at this particular time. So all the inmates were up against the fences on either side of this walkway. And they'd uh, collected their milk cartons that they had for breakfast, little 300 mil things that you might have had your move or oak in at some point. And um, they filled them up with feces and urine. So uh, Robert walked and he could hear everyone yelling out, hey, Dad. And he, he tried to sort of turn around and say, I can't walk past here. And the guard said, no, mate, go. You have to. You've got to go over to the other side of the yard. And anyway, he had a 50-metre walk where they just held uh, poo and urine at him and yelled out, hey, Dad, cop this. And he was covered in it, covered in filth mm. and um, sat on a hill once he got across the yard crying for an hour before they um, took him into his cell where he had a shower and cleaned up and... Then he rang his partner and, you know, that was the first time anyone had seen him upset and he, he cried and said, I can't do this. Um, it's re- reality hit him and that's what he was in for during his stay at Goulburn. And so now he walks around with a ski jacket on at all times because he knows he's going to be pelted with other people's wee and poo whenever they can. I mean, that's his life. Yeah, it's pretty opportunistic now. They don't know when they're going to see him, but uh, he does get spat at on on spot. That's that's the biggest thing. The one thing we do see in The Shawshank Redemption is sexual assault. That's a big part of that film. And is that still, is that a reality in prison? Unfortunately, it is. It doesn't happen to the extent that you see it in movies, but it does happen. And um, it's one of the most horrible things that 
that happens in there. Um, it's underreported, as you'd probably expect. Like guys that do get raped don't go and tell authorities. Mm. Number one, they're embarrassed. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing and they're, they're ashamed about it. And number two, uh, they're scared for their lives. I mean, you know, they've got to go back to a cell or see these guys. They're, they've warned them. They said, you tell anyone, we're going to kill you. And the way it's picked up and the way that was described to me in the book was um, the nurses at the medical oh. centre. Um, there's many, many injuries sustained, and I won't go into the details of what mm. sort of injuries, but you can imagine. And, um, you know, the guys still won't admit what happens, but they know. And, you know, on occasions there have been ones that, that, that have gone ahead and pressed charges, and um, there have been plenty that have been convicted of sexual assault whilst in prison. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I wouldn't have thought, I would have thought it'd be very difficult to get a conviction in that situation, but that is, that's good to hear at least. What is it that interests you about prisons? I mean, I'm the same. I'm reading your, I'm devouring this book. Um, what is it about us? Why are we fascinated with prison? It's voyeurism. It's um, something that we're terrified of, I guess. It, mm. it, you know, something that you have nightmares about is being taken, you're having your freedom taken away. That's number one, but then being shoved in a cage with uh, the most dangerous people in your country. I mean, it's just horrifying. And for me, it was, I've always loved my prison movies, I suppose. And, um, you know, I didn't think that these stories actually were true, that things like this happen. Like, you know, Shawshank, they've built this, you know, remarkable tunnel all the way out. Mm. But um, we've got, we had one of those in Parramatta Jail. There was a 180 <laughs> metre tunnel underneath and... You know, they were ready to go. They almost got out. It was only a, a bloke placing a phone call to his mum saying, I'll see you tomorrow. That <laughs> happened to be tapped that um, got these guys busted at the last minute. But, um, yeah, they've, they've had, you know, in jails they've been caught with power tools, jack, um, hammers, everything. And um, they use them to dig dig holes. But um, yeah, it's the violence, I guess, that, that really is the interesting part and, you know, how these blokes survive in this uh, little microcosm. Yeah, it is so terrifying. Who are some of the prisoners in Goulburn Jail that we'd have heard of? Uh, you would have heard of Ivan Milat, I am sure. He's mm-hmm. um, probably our most notorious criminal in Australia, and um, he's a very, very difficult prisoner. So I spoke to um, some psychs for the book, and you know they obviously look after the prisoners' mental health, but they told me as soon as he got to Goulburn that... Um, in their reports, they warned that he'd turn to self-mutilation because he didn't have the outlet to hurt other people. So oh. he's addicted to pain and giving it. So when he couldn't hurt other people, he'd turn to himself. And that, that ended up proving it correct. In Supermax, as you said, cameras, the most monitored jail x-rays, he managed to get himself a little razor. And um, he went to take the top of his finger off. So he sat down in his bed and had a crack at it. But um, it was no good for the bone. The blade was too blunt. So he found a uh, plastic knife with a serrated edge and he, he turned it into a saw. He managed to saw through the bone and he whacked it in a little envelope and addressed it to the, the High Court of Australia and tried to send it out. And of course, all the mail gets screened. So they found this envelope with blood on it and addressed to the High Court from Ivan Milat. They opened it up, found the finger. And they went in and Ivan was passed out, blood everywhere on the ground. Um, they picked him up. They uh, took him to hospital. And newspaper reports said that they put the finger on ice and tried to reattach it. Well, I can tell you they didn't. One of the guards just threw it over his shoulder and went, mate, bad luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do they feel about you writing these stories, by the way, the guards? Because they're very candid in the book. Um, there's there's details that I think, oh, are you allowed to say that? Yeah, uh, they're a bit. They're a funny bunch. Like uh, mm. they love talking off the record and they want their stories out there. But a lot of them are terrified about corrective services. I mean, this is their job, and a lot of them would lose their jobs for revealing things like this. So, you know, in the book, a lot of guards are spoken to on the record. They're former guards, mm. but the best stuff probably comes from the current guards. And um, 
you know, they want to, they're their war stories. They want to tell them. They, a lot of people in the general public don't know what these guys go through and what they do. And they hate being compared to security guards. They hate being called prison guards, even though I've done it in the book. Okay. What do they want to be called? Corrections officers. Okay. And I mean, they feel that it's a bit degrading and it compares them to security guard. And, um, you know, they're, they're probably right because these guys aren't security guards. They they deal with things like Ivan Malat chopping his finger off and they escort, um, you know, Basim Harmsy around and sort of all these dangerous, most dangerous guys. Who's and that guy? Basim Harmsy. Yeah. He, yeah, he's brothers for life. He founded one of the most uh, brutal gangs in Australian history. Oh. He actually, there was a shootout at Melbourne. Um, he's actually a Sydney criminal, but someone in Melbourne, I think, owed him $100. For drugs, and um, he actually caught a plane down and got his gang, six or seven of them, and just uh, peppered the house with bullets. I mean, that's how ruthless this guy is. Yeah, but, right. Um, he's been caught with mobile phones in jail where he's ordering hits. And actually, isn't there a rival gang leader in there as well of his? Yeah, yeah like he an is. enemy of his? We can't reveal his name right now because oh. he's in front of the courts. But, um, yeah, it's a rival gang. It's quite r- brutal. They're uh, responsible for a number of... Uh, robberies across the Sydney and um, yeah, they don't get on at all. And so how do they keep them apart? And I mean, how do they manage that? Well, in Supermax, you can actually see nobody um, if oh. that's what your arrangement is. You, it's a level of privilege and um, you earn the right to do things. So uh, at the very bottom of the chain, you sit in a cell that has nothing except for a bed and a toilet and you're locked in there for 23 hours a day. Your meals are delivered to you. And you're let out an hour a day for exercise. And is yeah. that individually, like one guy at a time? Individually, yeah. well, that's it. So you don't see anyone, your food's brought to you, and you, you walk out in the yard by yourself. You're let out on your own. And it's a little tiny yard in the middle with a running track and, you know, a basketball hoop. At the other end of the scale, if the, you're so well behaved in Supermax, you can actually earn yourself a television. Um, you've got a little kitchenette outside the cell that you'll have access to, and they might give you a toaster and your own bread and mm. some milk, um, a radio. You'll get some newspapers. And you can also apply for associations. So you might have a mate or someone that you want to talk to in Supermax and you can apply and say, I want to speak to Joe Bob uh, and I'll put you in the little kitchenette for an hour together a day. But that is also open to abuse because the only time these inmates really apply for associations is when they want to belt belt the crap out of the other bloke. Yep. (laughs) Wow. A lot of murders happen in the shower though, right? Yeah, there are. Uh, a famous one, which was actually kicked off the, f- the killing fields, was uh, a guy called Marslin. Uh, he's a, a big uh, Indigenous pedophile, and for some reason uh, he was attacked. And it's believed that he raped someone in another jail, and this was payback for that rape. Oh, my God. But, um, yeah, he was mobbed by up to three guys while he was in the shower, and uh, there was something like um, 60-odd stab wounds. It was that bad, but... He, he's run out of the shower and I've interviewed the guard on the record that um, was first on the scene and it's just whole, horror, horrible, chilling stuff. But he describes sticking his fingers into the stab wounds, trying to stop the bleeding as this bloke's dying on the... That's right. I remember that story. And then he found out the guy was had full-blown AIDS. He did. So this prison guard uh, spent three wow. months just having nightmares that he had AIDS. He was sure, sure he had it, given that much blood had gone over him. He said it was spurting. Just I was, spurting on him. I was really surprised that he would go to that length, to be honest. Me too. I mean, they take their duty of care very seriously. Mm. And um, one of the reasons why they, you know, what they wouldn't have known uh, this Marslin guy as that pedophile, they try and just treat every inmate the same. And oh, okay. They have to, because if they know about their crimes and know that this guy's a renowned pedophile, which they, they kind of do, but they pretend that they're, they're, they're not, okay. they, you know, they just can't handle it. They want to kill these blokes. And there's another story in the book about a guard that, walked into a famous uh, child murderer's 
uh, cell and on the back of his door he's walking out after just giving him something or I'm not sure about the circumstances, but it, it said life is short. He'd written that and put it on the back of his door. And this guy just turned around and thought, mate, life is short. It's short for the girl that you killed. Oh he grabbed, grabbed him around the throat and started choking him and... He said, I almost killed him. He said, I, I just at the last minute, I realized what I was doing and let him go and had to run out. He said, that's the only time I've snapped in my whole career. He said, but it easily could have led to me killing him. I can't imagine anyone not wanting to kill him. What sort of people are prison guards? Um, it's funny. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of ex-military, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of the guys I spoke to have done some sort of military training. Um, other people that uh, have been in the police force and gotten out and looking for something a little bit different. But at Goulburn Jail, it's pretty much um, run by families. So they're all second, third, fourth generation. They're, they're cousins, brothers. It's a, it's a really? Very much, yeah, it's very much an ancestral jail in that sense. God, that is fascinating. Have you ever interviewed anyone who has been a prisoner in Goulburn or in Long Bay? Any former prisoners? About- yeah, yeah, yeah. There's six or seven that I've interviewed for the book. Um, mostly anonymous, but um, okay. yeah, heaps. Uh, and in Long Bay, I interviewed Abbo Henry, who was one of the most infamous Sydney criminals ever. He ran around with a guy called Nettie Smith. Um, oh yeah, Old I don't school. know if you know. I don't know if you know Blue Murder, the series, yep. or, or the Underbellies. Yeah, he was he- featured heavily in that. He used to uh, take blokes out of the pub and smash their head over sandstone rocks down <sighs> in the rocks. What do they say about uh, rehabilitating back into into the the outside world after no. living through something like Goulburn? Okay, well the way they say to me, they say you've got two class of criminals. You've got the psychopaths mm. who are sick in the head; they're the the pedophiles, the serial killers, these guys. Yeah. And then you've got the career criminal. These are your armed robbers, the people that have maybe murdered because of a drug transaction, or you know these are career criminals. So the psychopaths, you can't rehabilitate them; they're just mad. Okay, they okay. you'll never fix them, and the career criminals you'll never rehabilitate them either because they don't want to be rehabilitated. Yeah. When they get into a life of crime, they realise that they're going to spend some part of their life in jail. That's yeah. just par for the course. They cop it. So when they go to jail, they just use their time to uh, build up some more networks, <laughs> refine their skills, get some tips, yeah. and they're out again. Even when they're out, they know they're going to go back. But it just doesn't do bother su- them. How do you survive out in the world? I mean, I remember, and you would have spoken to returned servicemen, you know, when you talk to a bloke about his coming home from Afghanistan and he says, oh, it's bizarre. I'm driving around suburban Brisbane looking for IEDs and it just takes a really long time to be able to cope with boring old life again. How do those guys cope with that, with their wives and families and the bloke at the shop? Are we talking about guards or criminals? Both, I suppose. Um, I mean, uh, when you're spending so much time in an environment like Goulburn, which sounds like hell, then how do you ever cope with the normal world again when someone cuts you off in traffic or, you know? Yeah, I guess for the prison officers, it's it's extremely difficult. And I know it is. Like I, a lot of the retired guys, they um, actually miss their job. They, they really love it. Wow. Um, and I guess there is a, a bit of boredom there for a lot of them. <laughs> um, I suppose it'd be never dull. Yes, never look, dull. And the inmates, well, they don't have to worry about it for too long because most of them find themselves back in jail within a year. Yeah. Tell us about some of the, the weaponry. I mean, how how do they make them? How Like shivs. Apparently, during the Killing Fields period of time at Goulburn, you, you write in the book, everyone had a shiv of some description, some stabbing implement. Where do they come from? Yeah, look, if you can find anything that can be fashioned into a point, it will become a shiv. So the most popular, and you've seen it in plenty of TV shows and movies, is the toothbrush. Mm. So you grab your plastic toothbrush and scrape it along the wall and you make a point. 
and that becomes enough to pierce skin and um, do some damage. But they're very creative. So um, the mop buckets, you might know the old steel mop buckets. They've got yeah. a little little steel spindle around um, where where the device connects. They pull them off. It's a little bit of uh, metal. They sharpen that. That's another famous one. Wow. Um, in Goulburn, they had construction going on for a while, and the inmates were getting them ha- their hands on steel Rio. Which, if you know, is brutal stuff. It's no. heavy. It's yeah. It's it's used in concrete, the oh. whole concrete. But it's a it's basically a big spike. So they're using them. Um, they also get you know they had bed posts, uh, bed springs at some stage. Um, you know you can go through history. Anything that can be made into a weapon has, and it's just been once someone's been stabbed with one, they go, okay, we can't have springs in beds anymore. Foam mattresses. I suppose, and again, it comes down to these guys have got all day to figure this stuff out and think up things to try out and see if they work, and you've just got to react to them when it works. Yeah, they do. And, I mean, you could stop every potential we- every potential object in jail from being made into a weapon. They're still going to get their hands on them. I mean, people smuggle them in. They're, they go to visits, and um, people will bring them in in their body and, and hand them over. And, you know, there's been guys found with power tools, for crying out loud, mm. in, their, in their jail cells that they're digging holes with. <laughs> I found the story about well, the information that you had about the racial segregation of the prison really interesting. On the surface, it sounds terrible, uh, particularly to someone like me. It sounds like um, racism. Mm-hmm. But then when you described or explained the arguments that were used by the prison and the way it came about, apparently, you know, someone is allowed to be sort of the boss of the prisoners in the wing. That bloke was never, ever an Aboriginal guy. So one day the Aboriginal guys said, we don't want to eat food that's handed to us by white guys anymore. Is that how it worked? And they said, we want our own, our own boss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And then from that point on, they said, oh, "We'll have your own wing, and you can have your own setup out there." Is that how it worked? Yeah, pretty much. This system that they got now has um, prevented a lot of crime and re- resulted in the prison being a quieter place. But it didn't happen by design; it happened by accident. Mm. It was um, yeah, a bunch of indigenous guys um, went on a hunger strike. They said, "We're not eating until we get a uh, Aboriginal sweeper in the wing." Sweeper—that's what it's called. The uh, boss. Yeah, they're yeah. like the boss of the wing. Yeah, and um, the guard said, "Well, no, you can't have one." So they stopped eating, and this uh, prison. And officer off the cuff said to the boss, well, why don't we just put them in their own wing? Yep. And um, they said, all right. They tried it. And all of a sudden they noticed that um, all these bashings and standovers and um, crimes were, were going down because they were together and basically they had a level of respect and it was pretty much all a gang house together. 
So It's um, fascinating because it sounds to me like exactly the sort of thing that someone like me, who could definitely be accused of being a bleeding heart, lefty, whatever, you know, that I would hear that or read a headline in the paper and say, that's disgusting. But actually, it has led to a much more peaceful time in the jail. Well, I think it's hugely controversial still. I mean, we're the only place in the world, I think it's the only jail in the world that does it over in... Um, the US, uh, there was a, there was cases of it with gangs being put together in isolation, and a, a court in California ruled that it was racism, and they compared it to mm. apartheid and compared it to the civil rights movements and, and the things that were happening in buses back in the fifties, and yeah. they stopped it. But we're still doing it. And that, you've got it on that hand, but on the other hand, it actually is working. So, I mean, what do you do? And I felt as though it, it, it as I read. You, what you you were saying, and what what the guards and the and the people from the prison were saying, it felt as though it displayed a deep sort of understanding of where the prisoners were coming from as well, and who who they were when they arrived in jail, and it was sort of talking about the deprivation that a lot of Aboriginal prisoners had survived as children and young men and and then they get to this place and so they steal things because they don't have anything and so it it actually seemed very thoroughly thought out to me yeah it wasn't it, it oh. might, <laughs> okay it might have might appear that way but okay. it was all about um them not eating and, yeah right yeah right we'll give you what you want <laughs> okay so what's next for you is there another prison in your sights um I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think it will be a prison. I'm actually looking at two subjects at the moment, and they couldn't be further apart. One's shark attacks. Great. And the other one's pornography. God, you know what you're doing. You yeah. know topics that everyone wants to read about. Yeah, I just think a history of the porn industry would be uh, fascinating. It hasn't been properly done, and there's so many unanswered questions there. And Yeah. Yeah, give me an excuse for research uh, <laughs> when my wife walks in at one in the morning. <laughs> James Phelps there, author and journalist. Um, Now, so what happened was I talked a bit about my conversation with James on my radio show and a man phoned into the radio show. And uh, so I grabbed his number and called him back and asked him if he'd be interested in doing a little podcast chat with me. He said yes, but he, he just didn't want to use his name. So welcome to the next bit of the podcast with an actual former prison inmate. How realistic is what James has been telling us about the prison system in Australia. At the same time, everyone thinks, oh, if I go there, my life's over. Yeah? Yeah. But the thing is, no matter what happens, yeah, you're going to either want to sit in the corner and cry, which ain't going to make the doors open for you any magically, Mm. any sooner, or you can just sit there and say, you know what, stiff shit, I'm just going to turn around and... Try and enjoy it, make the most of it, and deal with it. Try and enjoy prison. I've never heard anyone say that before, but how, how did you end up in jail? Uh, I was a heroin addict. Yeah. And so committing so, crimes to, to feed your addiction? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what sort of crimes? A um, bit of everything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, robberies, wow. burglaries, thefts, yeah. kidnapping. So how long had you been using by the time you ended up in jail? Um, first time I went to jail was probably within two, three years because I was working at the start and then the habit just got worse and worse. And yeah. before you know it, I was no longer working and just committing crime 24-7. When you ended up in jail the first time, was it scary then? And and also, I guess you're withdrawing when you, when you first get in there. Yeah, but I don't know. Everyone says it's hard to withdraw, but for me... It was easier to do it in jail than it is out here because in there, 
you know, there's no chance. Like, on the street, you know, well, if I turn around and go and do something, yeah, like I'm one burglary or one robbery away from having a hit. Whereas in there, like, everyone that goes to jail, well, most that go through the magistrate's court, you end up underneath the court mm. where you got no sunlight, no nothing, and you just lay there. Like, I was there for, I think it was 26 days. Wow. So... And that was, you don't get sunlight there. The food is, you wouldn't give it to your worst enemy. Mm. But and because you're... it was there, my mind dealt with it quicker. Like, I couldn't do it outside, but in there I could. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but because you know there's no chance, or there is a chance if someone comes through with something, but that's pretty rare. Mm. So you just, because you know it's not happening... Well, for me, I could switch off and, yeah, it was still hard, but on the street it was harder because I knew I just had to go do something and I'd feel better. So after that first time then, was it sort of less scary to you, the idea of going to jail once you'd been through the system once? No, after that, that's the problem. Jail doesn't hold fears. Yeah. Like, the thing here, you know, is the old saying, it's nice to go where everyone knows your name. And once you go to jail, once you meet that many people, it's... You go back and it's it's not scary. Like the first time, when the, the first time they close the doors on you, once you hear, because the doors are very, very loud and it's got a distinct sound. When you hear them close that door, that's when reality sets in. But then, you know, while you're there, oh, I'm going to get out, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to this, I'm going to that. You know, within a week or two, you're back with your old mates and it's the same old stuff over and over. Like before the first time I went to jail, I was more scared about getting caught because I had built jail up in my mind, whereas after I'd been there once, it didn't hold any fears for me. Yeah, and it's, then, it's interesting because the guy who wrote the book, he, he reckoned that, oh, there's two kinds of criminals. There's psychopaths and there's career criminals. But obviously there's there's many more kinds of criminals. You, you were you were an addict and you so you had, it was a means to an end to you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's not not like you wanted to make a career out of criminal stuff, right? No, well, the thing for me, each time I got out of jail, I'd try to do the right thing. Yeah. But the thing was, I'd always, like, I could always go, it was roughly, I'd get to about 12 months clean once I was out of jail, but I couldn't get past that. And eventually I'd slip up and it'd be Groundhog Day again. I'd just, one day I was living a normal life, the next day I was out 24-7 doing whatever I can to use. Yeah. And then eventually, for me, the thing was that just as I went to jail, I started to get sick of it, thinking my life's just Groundhog Day. Gentlemen, it's just the same thing over and over. And, it, you know, it starts to wear you down. Then I went to jail, and the thing is, I realised that everyone there is someone I know. Mm. And I started to look, and you see people, you know, that are 20, 30 years older, and then you think, you know, is this what I want in 20 years? Again, I got out after that, and I again stuffed up. But then after that, I just, it was the same thing. And I just thought, you know, in jail, I'd always, you know, got my hands on whatever pills or drugs I could in there. And then this time I turned around and said, no, nah, I'm going to try to do it right. I put my hand up to get put on methadone, which was a mistake. But anyway, so I got put on that, didn't use my whole sentence, got out, changed straight away to the suboxone. And I've been out of jail now probably, it's three years in December. 
How did you feel when you crossed that threshold, that 12-month threshold, and then it was 18 months and then it was two years out of jail? But the thing was I didn't think about it. Yeah, right. The thing was I just I was always worried I'd stuff up until I could get a job because I knew if I was sitting at home, mm. it's not going to take long before I get bored and something will happen. I started to work and I just forgot about it. Just over 18 months ago, I met my missus. And of course, you know, you don't know whether to tell them or not. And I told her bits and pieces without going into too much detail. And then, you know, she wasn't dumb. She started checking on the internet and she found out little things. And eventually I told her everything. And so after a while, she knew when I got out, how long it had been since I'd used or this or that. And she brings it up. Whereas now, I don't think about it. Mm. Like even, I'm still on Suboxone now. I go see the doctor once a month. I have to see him once a month for a script. And, you know, he always sits in. They have to ask the normal question, have you thought about using, have you used? I said, the only time I think about heroin now is when you ask me or someone asks me a question about it. Mm. Like, for me, it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. That's a miracle. And even I read a book, this is a long time ago, but it said that for most people, heroin has a nine-year cycle. I don't know if it's true. You know, the amount of stuff you're reading books, who knows? Yeah. Everyone's got their own theory. But I turned around and include, like, if I minus the time that I was in jail, it works out to roughly nine years. Wow. So whether it's true or not is another story, but yeah. maybe for me it is true. So you credit going to jail with helping you clean up in the end? Yeah. And ch- turn your life around? Well, in jail was the only time, you know that I could stay, like I might be able to use in jail, but I could, couldn't could run a habit in there, like using every day, three times a day. Okay. So I might be able to have something once a week, once a month, whatever. And in the end, there's people that use in jail, but if you use, say, syringes, for example, mm. unless you've got your own, you have to use what I call a St Kilda syringe, which means everyone's been through it. And the wow. thing is for me, I'd always use, but... I don't know, part of me always knew I wouldn't do it forever and I was always scared of catching any disease. Yeah. And thank God that I don't have anything now, but it was because of things like that that you'd see, you know, eight, ten people mulling up the Suboxone and they'd sit there and one would stick it in their arm, they'd wash it out with water, then the next one. And this would go on for, you know, eight, ten people every single day. And it made me physically sick to see it. And quite apart from the the bloods, is the bluntness of a needle by then? I mean, they must have been scarring them up like crazy. I've seen them use bike pumps, like wow. literally a shave down bike pump that you literally have to hold the person's arm, yeah. and then someone else stabs them, and I mean stabs them to get it in. Wow, that's the thing. When you're an addict, you you know you don't care. No, and I would think if ever I was in an environment where I wanted to vague out and not. And, and sort of take myself out of my surroundings, it would be in prison. Was that was that your experience? I mean, you, I know you didn't use as much in prison, but did you want no, to? No, at the start, I did. Yeah. But the thing was, well, the second time I went to jail, I went in with my own syringe. Mm-hmm. And then I'd used, but I was also taking, like, you know, half the system, if not three quarters of it, on psych medication. How and, did you get your syringe in, by the way? Oh, do you really want to know? Yeah. Up your bum. Did you really? And in the, I thought they like 
gave you naked searches nah. and stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Okay. You can turn around, you'd be surprised that you can literally put it up there and you can feel it literally suck up into your stomach. Wow. Like you, you know, think of everything you probably carry in your purse. If it isn't wider than a cigarette pack, I could probably fit it all. And 99% of the jail system can. Wow. You take, you know, some jails don't sell lighters. Like, if you're going to smoke drugs, you need lighters. So people hide lighters, knives, phones, you name it. Phones? Mm. And then, sorry, this is gross, but then do you poo it out? You have to wait till it comes out sort of naturally, or are you, try, are you reaching up there and getting it? No, you can just push it back out. Can you? Yeah. Wow. Be surprised. I mean, people I know, am. You, you put someone in an environment where they have to work out with ways to yeah. do things. Like I know people that say to get their medication out, they can, because you have to open your mouth to show them, they can turn around, open their mouth, like first put a piece of Glad wrap in there, roll it up into a ball, swallow it, then they check your mouth, show them there's nothing there, then turn around, cough it back up, unwrap it with their tongue, then they give you the Suboxone, which at the time was in a powder, make sure it goes onto the Glad wrap, Show, their, show it again to show them you've actually got it in your mouth and you go into a little room where a guard's watching you and they turn around and be able to wrap it up, half swallow it again, then they check your mouth afterwards because you've got to have a drink of water, yeah. then get back to the unit and just, <clears throat> and bang, it's there. No saliva to it, no nothing. Wow. And then what are you doing? You do, are you selling it or something? Do other prisoners want that? Yeah, oh, now because it's they give it to you in this like film now, but... More so, more often the most used drug in heroin now is Suboxone. Oh, wow. Like methadone is a fluid, which is harder. Suboxone was powder, which was easy. So now it's like little, I don't know, it's like an LSD tab that dissolves underneath your tongue. And so <laughs> it's a drug to try and help you um, not... It's the heroin withdrawal. But what, but so then why are you saving it? If you have enough of it, do you get high or high off it? No, for people that aren't on it, oh. they get high. Like, say, yes. I'm on Suboxone now. Okay, yeah. I have it. It just makes me feel normal. You have it, a tiny bit of it, you'll be off your face. Oh, I see. Right. See, obviously, it builds up in your system over a while, and for me, it does nothing. Just, if anything, now I feel normal on it. I don't withdraw, I don't nothing. So, but all but of that anyone stuff, else. all of that stuff's currency in jail. Yeah. Everything's currency in jail. Yeah. Um, how did you go finding employment, by the way? You, you were saying earlier uh, that you knew that that was going to be a big part of your staying clean and staying out. How hard is it to do that? Pretty hard. When you've been to jail, yeah. Well, you know, you get people that don't, but then I've noticed these days it's becoming more common that they check. Yep. And, like, at the moment, I put an ad up on Gumtree. Oh. And I get work through that. But I've also joined, uh, joined in a labour hire agency, mm-hmm. and so they get me work most of the time. And when they don't, I just go into Gumtree, or I have people ringing the ad I have up every day, and I can just turn around and get a few days' work here and there from that. You know, most weeks now I work, say, at least four days. Hopefully, I try work seven days, but sometimes it's not possible. Wow. Um, yeah, so you have obviously... You have no long-term employment yet, no no benefits, no holiday pay, no nothing. You're just, no. if, you, if you don't work, you don't earn? Yeah. 
Wow. And does your partner work? Yeah, but she can only work 20 hours a week. She's an international student. So it never gets easier, does it? You, you're a person who's overcome your addiction and, and overcome your, your criminal lifestyle that went with it, but it's really hard for you to be accepted back into mainstream society. Yeah, well, you've got to see, when you go for a job interview and they find out you have a criminal record, like I've had people look at me like I raped their daughter or something. Mm. So, you know, I'll try to say, look, I can't hide it. My past is my past. It doesn't mean it's the present and the future. But for some people, it's built up in their head that you're a monster. And I've tried to say to them, look, half the time, mate, I'd steal shit. I'd try most of the time not to hurt anyone. You know, I might steal something and that hurts them in one way, but I'd try not to, you know, Mm. I I never believed in seeing someone walking down the street and sticking a knife in their throat and saying, give me your wallet or give me your purse. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I thought that was taking it a step too far. But, you know, that's what people put everything together. Yeah, like... They lump you in with rapers, with pedophiles, with murderers, with this, with that. Yeah. To them, a criminal's a criminal. I've, for me, I don't. I can't say if I never got on drugs if I would have been a criminal, but for me, I know the drugs played a big, big part. Yeah. Yeah, before that, I was a, you know, a bit of a stuff-up, would do dumb things, but not to the extent I went to once I got hooked on drugs. Yeah. And what... But, mate, what- what was your childhood like and what, what was your family like? Oh, I come from a big, big family. I've got seven brothers and sisters. But my parents, you know, they get up, go to work every day. I can't. I don't blame my parents. You know, people try to say, well, you know, it must have been your parents that they've done something to make you like this. My parents tried to do everything they could for me. Even when I started to stuff up, they stood by me. They'd come by and visit every weekend. And I remember, at the end of the day, it's... You know, to me, once you're over 15, you can make your own choices. My parents couldn't turn around and tell me to stop. I was going to do what I was going to do. They just stood by me, hoping that one day I'd, you know, wake up to myself. And, yeah, it took a long, long time, but now they're happy. Mm. So they used to come and visit you in prison? Yeah. What's that like, having your mum come into prison to visit you? bad because you're always worried if they're going to strip search them or something. Like can, I they told do my that? Mom, <clears throat> can they do that to visitors? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, you can turn around and say no, but then you can't visit and they can ban you for a year. Oh. And I told my mum and dad if they ever tried to do anything like that, turn around, walk out, don't come back. I don't care. Yeah. Like one time, this is years ago, the map were trying a new system that sucked the air out of your clothes to see drug particles. Mm. And it come back as my mum with cocaine. And my mum was pissing herself laughing, but they turned around and wanted to strip search her. You know, I'm the one that stuffs up. Why should they be punished as well? It's degrading. I've done the wrong thing. I have to go through it fair enough. It's pretty they hard didn't. to think of your mum being strip searched, isn't it? It's really oh. unbearable. If they had have done it, I would have found the guard who'd done it and killed him. Yeah. You know, do whatever you want to me. I don't care. I deserve it. I'll cop it on the chin. But to then do something to my family, no, that's taken it a step too far. How hard is it to stay out of trouble once you're in there? That's the other impression I get is that you can get in there and, and it's really hard to stay, keep to yourself and stay clean and you can end up with other charges and end up in there longer. And Is that is that true? Oh, it can be. <clears throat> I got charged, this is about six years ago, for a fight in there. But a lot of the time, unless it's serious, like if 
you go to jail for murder, most of the time they're not going to give you more time mm. if it's not more serious than the offence you're in jail for. Ooh. Do you get what I mean? Yep, yep. So if you, if you go to jail for murder and you get charged for hitting some, hitting another prisoner, you won't really get more time. They'll give you time in the slot and they'll say, yeah, we're giving you 12 months, but it runs concurrent with your original sentence. Yeah. Now, it's a different kettle of fish if you bring drugs into the jail or you hit a guard. So, yeah. What's the slot? Solitary confinement. Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you ever go to the slot? Yeah. So what is it like? Oh, I was in there for it was four months. Four months. Yeah. Uh, so I'm. I'm. I mean, is it, it, it? What is it? Is it dark in there, and and you don't talk to no, anyone? A, oh, you can talk. You can yell at each other right. under the doors. And then once you've been in there for a bit, they give you a run out with one other person that they have to approve. Okay. But it's literally just a cell with a bed, a toilet. That's it. You can get, you know, books to read, but you've got nothing else to fill your time. Mm, wow. Um, what about sexual assault? I know the first time we spoke, you said that that everyone always thinks, I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to get raped, um, but, but you don't think that's sort of necessarily the case. Is it? Does it happen, though? Is that a media uh, beat-up? Uh, it's more media. It happens rarely, but the sad thing is most of the people in there that it happens to them, want it. Like they're doing it because they're scared. They think if they get some big bloke doing a few favours, they'll get looked after. Yeah. And then on top of that, well, I know of instances where a rapist came into the jail and, you know, five or six blokes would do it to him. Not rape him for the purpose of wanting to have sex with him, but to show him what happens to people that do it. Yeah. You know, rapists, things like that. You know, we've all got daughters, we've all got mothers. We might be crims, but, you know, something like that, no one stands for. Well, it's interesting because, again, in the the guy who wrote the Goulburn book, um, he he reckoned that crimes against women weren't that big a deal anymore in jail, and he put it down to the larger Muslim community, which I thought sounded really racist, but then I don't, I don't know. I've never been to jail, so I mean... Yeah, but it is a bit true. Yeah, right. But we don't have, like in Melbourne, the Muslims aren't, they're becoming a lot, like my brother's locked up now and there's a lot more Muslims in there now than there was when I was going to jail. Yeah. But the thing is, there's, like look, there's blokes in jail that they got turned around, they turned around and their wife was asleep and, you know, they had sex with them, they get charged for rape. And look, a lot of the time, I know you're a woman and it might sound bad, but You'd be surprised how many times women use rape charges to get at a bloke. Okay. It's sickening, but, you know, it's probably only 1%, which is bad because of, you know, the other 99% that have to go through something as bad as that. Yeah. But you'd be, you know, when there's a child involved and they want to get custody, things can get very, very nasty. Mm. Like, I know people, they got charged, they got pissed one night and they got a hooker. And at the end, they decided the hooker wasn't good enough. They didn't want to pay her. Well, they got charged for rape. Mm. But now, most of the time, you do something to a kid, you pretty much go to protection straight away or you're dead. Mm-hmm. You will get terrorised, which I think is fair. Mm-hmm. Rape, the same thing. But I've noticed now it only really happens 
when it's splashed all over the news, and then it's like someone just wants to make a name for themselves. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like, you see something on TV, like a few times people say, oh, I'm in for something else, and then you'll be sitting there, and on the TV, someone's head will pop up with their little cartoon drawings, and mm. then you'll realise, wait a second, that's him. Oh. And so a lot of the time they try to run out of the union, but occasionally they get caught and... They literally jump up and run out when their when their cartoon pops up on the news. No, once that happens, they know what's going to happen because it's one thing because they've done it, but it's also they've sat there and lied about it, yeah, which right. makes it a whole lot worse. Um, are you still in touch with anyone? I remember you saying the other day that that there is the communication between the inside and the outside is very uh, very clear. There's no troubles at all with with finding out inside what's going on outside, vice versa. Yeah, I have a couple of people that are on my phone list that yep. are in jail because they changed it a few years ago that you could have mobile. There's no in the end. No one really uses home phones anymore. Yeah. So you can have one or two mobiles on your phone list. So I've got a couple of mate. One's at Barwon, one's at Darangal, and there's one at Fulham. Uh, I talk to them probably once a week, maybe. Sometimes okay. once a fortnight. Okay. Uh, do you ever think about not doing that and about sort of... Distancing yourself from all of that? No. No? Most of the people now, like, there's people we used to run around with that are still doing what we used to do, and for them, that's when I keep my distance. Yeah. Someone's going to come out, try to do the right thing. You know, I know what it's like to have no help, so I'll do my best to help them. Mm. But once they start to drift off, that's when I say, see you later. God, so I mean, and I mean, this is true of anyone who's a you know recovering from an addiction. It's just a daily grind, isn't it? I mean, you have to just take every day as it comes and take every person who comes out as it, as they come. And yeah, but that's the thing. Like people say, oh, it's a daily thing. But the thing is, for me, it just it doesn't cross my mind. Yeah, it doesn't come into the equation anymore. It did for say the first eighteen months, and now, like I said, it's only if someone mentions it yeah. that I think about it. It's just it's. And no go for me anymore. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, you know, who knows what tomorrow holds, but I can't really see myself doing it. I mean, if I did and my missus found out, she'd probably castrate me in my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> You'll find more info about all of our guests at michellelaurie.com as well as a place to leave questions and feedback. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Please subscribe to get them all on iTunes and go ahead and leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.